From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to this Monday edition of Washington Watch. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've had a great weekend. Well, coming up. I come here to let Israel know that America will be with you. I come here to let the Arab world know, let's make peace if we can. Destroying Hamas is non-negotiable. That was South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham in Tel Aviv, Israel, yesterday, showing American support for Israel. Now, while the senator was in Israel showing support for the Jewish state, we were in his home state for a Stand With and Pray for Israel town hall meeting. We'll have some highlights from last night uh, a little bit later on this edition of Washington Watch. And it's back to square one in the effort to find a House speaker after the Republican conference essentially voted to end Jim Jordan's pursuit of the gavel. I think we need to find someone who hopefully can get to 217 before we're all poised in very drama fashion on the House floor trying to determine how this will unfold. Uh, I really uh, hope in the next several days as we come together as a Republican caucus that we're able to resolve that so that we go unified to the House floor and deliver a speaker. That was Congressman Mike Turner, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee yesterday on CNN State of the Union. Now, the Republican conference will be meeting this evening at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time to hear from the nine candidates vying for the post. FRC's Travis Weber will join me to look at how the nine candidates line up on faith, family, and freedom issues. Also on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court announced they would take what could be a landmark First Amendment case. The high court said it would consider a social media censorship case brought against the Biden administration by the attorneys general of Missouri and Louisiana. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins us to explain the importance of this case and how it could actually impact the 2024 elections. And guess what? Class will be back in session. Professor A.J. Nolte from Regent University joins us to continue our look at the policies and the politics behind the current crisis in the Middle East. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything, it's all archived right there at TonyPerkins.com. Our word for today comes from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul is writing to the church from prison in Rome. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, the chains of opposition met with the courage of our conviction in Christ will build the confidence in others to live for Jesus without fear. So how do we come to a point of having this type of courage? Look what he says in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So how do you intimidate someone with that outlook on life? How do you stop them? Well, the answer is you don't. For more on our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org slash Bible. A reminder, if you would like your voice to be heard, and I certainly hope you do want your voice to be heard, in this effort by the Biden administration, their Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to force businesses to use preferred pronouns and to open their bathrooms to whomever, you can submit a comment. The deadline for your comment is November the 1st. and We've made it pretty easy for you to do that. Just uh, go to frc.org slash free speech. 
That's frc.org slash free speech. We make it very easy for you to submit a comment. On Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear arguments in Missouri versus Biden during this upcoming term. This is the free speech case brought by attorneys general in Missouri and Louisiana against the federal government's coordinated effort with big tech to illegally censor and manipulate the free speech of Americans. The high court also removed an injunction that limited the Biden administration's content moderation talks with tech companies until this lawsuit is decided, demonstrating why this case moving forward to the nation's highest court is so important. Joining us to discuss this is Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey. General Bailey, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me on and for covering this important story. I think it's a it's a huge story and it's one that's uh, not getting a lot of attention. But I, I would assume that the the word from the court on Friday was kind of a mixed bag. Good news that this is going before the high court, but removing that injunction uh, is problematic. I would think. Yeah, and as you pointed out, this is all about protecting our fundamental right to free speech in America. Disappointed that the court didn't allow the injunction to remain in place, confident that eventually it will allow that injunction to to go into place. You know, we suffered the same setback at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we've won twice there. We've won once at the District Court, twice at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The score is Missouri 3, Biden 0 in the fight for free speech. We're confident that ultimately the court will restore that injunction after hearing uh, briefing and oral argument on this matter. Well, you and I have discussed this uh, quite extensively on this program. You have a ton of evidence to make your case, in fact, so much so that the the court, the the lower court, put that injunction in place, basically telling the Biden administration that they could not collude with social media uh, pending the outcome of this case. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline. Uh, When will the court hear arguments in this case? Well, we are hopeful that we can get the matter briefed and argued uh, maybe before the end of the year, certainly early into next year. It's important that the court move as expeditiously as possible. We've got to build a wall of separation between tech and state to defend our, protect our First Amendment right to free speech, especially as we move into an election cycle. COVID was the excuse that Biden and his uh, crony bureaucrats used, uh, you know, take exploiting a national emergency to violate our constitutional rights and suppress any speech they disagreed with. We can't let them do that as we move into an election cycle. They've already proven themselves committed to future violations, and that's why we've got to continue to push and resolve this matter as, as expeditiously as possible. So has the court put this on a fast track? We're still waiting on a briefing schedule, but I'll tell you, we're going to use all uh, all available haste to make sure that the, the matter is briefed and argued. Certainly, we've done preliminary discovery. We went to court at the district court level back in May and put on a quantum of evidence sufficient to justify a nationwide uh, preliminary injunction. Again, preliminary discovery for preliminary injunction. We haven't even gotten to the merits of this case yet. We've got to continue to root out this vast censorship enterprise. But I'll tell you, uh, the three judges that dissented, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Alito, and Gorsuch, opined that uh, there was sufficient evidence at the di- that was presented at the district court level to justify the stay. So we know we've already got at least three justices who are, are keyed in on this issue and, and, and ready to go. And so we've just got to get it briefed and argued. These are the worst First Amendment uh, violations in this nation's history when we've got to keep fighting, especially as we move into next year's election cycle. Yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, the dissenting judges in the court's uh, opinion to remove uh, or to stay the injunction 
Uh, Alito wrote in his dissenting opinion, this is most unfortunate because he preferred to have that wall of separation where there could not be collusion between the government and social media to silence the voices of Americans. So let's step back for just a minute, uh, General Bailey. You know, we may have some listeners that have not been a party to our previous conversations. Let's talk a little bit about the evidence that you've uncovered to date that shows this collusion and how the Biden administration coerced social media giants to censor the voice of Americans. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we've only, like I said, just begun to scratch the surface. 20,000 pages of documents or more, numerous depositions, all of that preliminary discovery to obtain a preliminary injunction. Uh, we can show you the emails where the White House Communications Office was directly censoring uh, disfavored speech, calling to suppress a Tucker Carlson video, a Tommy Lahren post, to de-emphasize de-platform, shadow ban, anyone who questioned whether mask mandates or vaccines worked. And we put that evidence on uh, back on May 26th at the district court level. And by the 4th of July, the district court ruled there were 82 pages of factual finding. That's individually numbered paragraphs that accumulate over 82 pages of facts that we put on based on evidence in court that the court believed and was were dispositive of the court's ruling. So this isn't just the attorney general in, in Louisiana and Missouri speculating that there might have been a, a violation of our constitutional rights here. We've proven it in court at this point. It's been affirmed at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals twice now. And I would point out, too, like you said, it's coercion and collusion. But look at the district court's injunction that was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit that now is being reviewed at the U.S. Supreme Court. All it says is that the uh, federal government can't coerce or control big, sec big tech social media. And what we know in the past is that big tech changed their terms of service agreements and their censorship algorithms to satisfy federal officials' demands. That has to stop. When we talk about the wall of separation between tech and state, that's exactly where the rubber hits the road. When, when you get a court like the Fifth Circuit that uh, you know, puts in place a, a, an injunction from the Biden administration, um, from colluding with social media prior to the actual case being litigated, that suggests there's strong evidence that you would prevail in the court. Absolutely. One of the uh, factors in the court's determination as to whether or not to grant a preliminary injunction is whether or not the party is likely to succeed on the merits of the party moving for the preliminary injunction. And so, again, that quantum of evidence that, that we put on, the, those documents, the testimony, the depositions, all of that that accumulated over 82 pages of individual factual findings, you know, that was sufficient evidence to show there's likely violations of the First Amendment here that the, the, the big tech was censoring at the demand of the federal government. And that's what we've got to put a stop to. When you look at the evidence that you've you've gathered so far, are you going to have the opportunities this case moves further to gather even more evidence? Absolutely. Again, we've only begun to scratch the surface. We know for a fact that the vast censorship enterprise grew so quickly under Biden's watch that uh, the federal government had to design a new bureaucratic apparatus to manage the censorship. Uh, that was housed in the, the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency within the Department of Homeland Security, CISA. CISA's entire purpose is to protect roads, bridges, and uh, computer databases. And yet the director of CISA said, well, there's also cognitive infrastructure. So the, the director is committed to controlling what we say, what we think, what we hear. And that justifies, in their minds, their constitutional violations. But we're not going to let Joe Biden dest destroy free speech in America. Uh, we will continue to root out the vast censorship enterprise in merits discovery. And we will hold wrongdoers accountable if they violate the court order. 
And now, General, I know you're not going to use hyperbole when you talk about this, and, and I've talked to uh, our your, your colleague in this and friend of mine, Jeff Landry. The, the, you've described this as a vast enterprise, and, and so this is quite extensive. Is this still happening? Is it still happening? It absolutely is still happening, and that's one of the things the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals latched onto. Not only are there people who won't come back to big tech social media platforms because they were censored, but it's not just the speakers, but the listeners whose rights were violated. Essentially, every user on big tech, their rights have been violated because they were deprived of information necessary upon which to make uh, good personal health care decisions or potentially decisions at the ballot box when big tech suppressed at the federal government's de demand, the Hunter Biden laptop story. At some point, that becomes election interference. But I would point out, too, that the harm is, 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 uh, is still occurring because of self-censorship. Again, right. people are less likely to want to talk about President right. Trump or COVID issues or election integrity because they're afraid they'll get booted off the platforms. You're absolutely right. And there's there's a distrust not only for the government, but these platforms. I still question whether or not they're still doing the shadow banning and they're throttling back uh, the traffic that goes to some sites. General, we're up against the clock out of time. But you mentioned repeatedly this is going to affect the next election. Agree with you 100 percent. When would you expect a decision from the court? Well, again, we're going to push as hard as we can uh, to, to get the court to, to render a decision and make permanent that uh, preliminary injunction. We are hopeful that that would be handed down before next summer. I, I hope you're absolutely right. Uh, General Bailey, always great to see you. Thank you for fighting the good fight. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. All right. General Andrew Bailey of Missouri. It's a big case. It really is. Uh, and, and he's absolutely right. It is. It has um, had a chilling effect in the virtual town square where people talk. All right, after the break, there's a crowded field of nine members of Congress vying for this next speaker. We're going to look at them next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold 
or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers and their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. As I mentioned at the top of the program, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, has just released a new proposed rule to undermine sex-segregated spaces. That's bathrooms, showers, whatever, depending on what the business may have. And it would also stifle free speech in the workplace by expanding the definition of what constitutes workplace harassment. If you use get it out here in a minute, the wrong pronoun, you could be in trouble with the EEOC. Now, this uh, uh, th- this is unilateral by the EEOC, but they have posted a rule, and there is a time for public comment, which is now. The period at which this public comment uh, time ends is November the 1st. So you've got to get uh, got a little bit, uh, not long, about a week, and you can place a comment. We've made it very easy for you to do so. You can go to frc.org slash free speech or simply text six text uh, the, to the number 67742 EEOC. That's EEOC to 67742 and uh, you can file a comment. Well, House Republicans will be gathering shortly in the basement of the Capitol to hear from the nine candidates who have indicated they would seek the support of their colleagues to lead the fractured caucus. They have spent the weekend on the phones talking with their fellow House members and others trying to build support. I've had several conversations over the weekend, and I am hopeful, I I am hopeful and prayerful, prayed with several of them over the weekend, that they can arrive at a speaker sometime this week. So what do we know about each of the candidates? Joining me now to discuss this is Travis Weber, Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs here at the Family Research Council. Travis, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you, Tony. All right, let's talk about the nine candidates. Let's take uh, get an overview of them. The FRC Action has a scorecard, and so we have lifetime ratings for these members, which really indicate where they stand on key issues such as faith, family, and freedom. So let's uh, let's run down the list of who's running and how they line up. Yeah, so, Tony, uh, we do have um, those numbers as we've kept uh, track of the votes that the, these uh, elected leaders have taken on key issues in Congress over the years. Um, so Congressman uh, Jack Bergman has a lifetime of 97.28, Byron Donalds 98.7, Tom Ember 93, Kevin Hearn, 96, Mike Johnson, 99.4, Dan Muser, 95.6, Gary Palmer, 100 percent, 
Pete Sessions, 97, and Austin Scott, 95. And so those are the overall numbers. You know, they're, they're all pretty high, Tony. Um, you know, but there are some votes that stuck out to me in particular, looking at their records, um, votes that we uh, uh, have noted with um, particular focus, of, uh, particular interest of concern of faith, family, and freedom. So mm-hmm. uh, the well, overall numbers... Lifetime, let's start. Let, let's take a look, because I mean, realistically, I think there's a few here that stick out that are are going to be stronger contenders than the others. As I've been talking to members over the weekend, um, I mean, we, we see some really good guys here, lots of friends. But uh, I'm going to start with one who has the lowest score because he's anticipated by some to be one of the stronger candidates, and that's Tom Emmer, who happens to currently be the whip. And he has a score of 93, which is the lowest among all of those pursuing it. What, so what, what brought him to that lower score? Yeah, so most notably his vote for the Respect for Marriage Act. This was the, the legislation that um, uh, put into federal statute, um, legalized same-sex marriage. And, and so it was, a, it was a bill that we strongly opposed and did what we could to uh, highlight why no elected official should vote for this bill, but unfortunately he did vote for that. Um, he also voted uh, for the legitimization and spread of, of marijuana through the banking system against DOJ enforcing our marijuana laws and notably uh, preventing enforcement of the transgender military policy. He voted against an amendment um, or, or he voted the wrong way in an amendment that would have prevented the enforcement of, of a transgender military policy. So uh, we also voted for the Maloney Amendment back in 2016 that would have um, uh, that provided for special protections for sexual orientation and gender identity. So some concerning votes for um, Congressman Emmer on on these questions of sexuality and family, for sure. Well, I, I want to. Yeah, you're absolutely I think and he's uh, probably um, uh, an outlier on that, because I don't think any of the others have uh, votes that are. Um, you know, in line with uh, LGBTQ and transgender and all that. The one that I do see a common thread through some of them is this uh, legalization of marijuana. That seems to be something we've talked about uh, even on this program. This is where I think there's this um, infiltration of libertarianism within the party. And some thinking, look, let's just legalize it. Yeah, Tony, that is a thread. You know, we've seen even when those votes happened, you know, we recall noting some Republicans voting for the Safe Banking Act, which would provide for the facilitation of of marijuana-related transactions in the banking system and against DOJ enforcement. So there's this thought of, you know, just let the states deal with it or, you know, it's kind of it's in the system anyway. And this is problematic for a number of reasons. But I think, you know, as we continue to put the reasons and argumentation out there and the evidence comes to light about what happens when you legitimize drugs, uh, you know, hopefully elected officials will see that. Just, again, some of the t- the candidates kind of toward the top vying for this post that have that position uh, have voted to legalize marijuana or make it uh, more uh, moving in that direction with the Safe Banking Act was uh, Byron yeah. Donalds. Uh, we also had Kevin Hearn, uh, who has uh, cast some votes. He's the Republican study committee chairman. He's got a 96 percent lifetime. He's a good uh, good guy. But this is one of those issues that seems to be popping up. Um, Mike Johnson. Uh, who is the vice chair of the Republican conference. Uh, he uh, n- near the top with 99.4%. What happened to that 0.6%? That yeah, so, Tony, that was the year that we scored against the National Defense Authorization Act over the, the issue of women in the draft. And there were a few other issues with it. But with the NDAA, 
you do, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's a big vote for members, and there's a lot of considerations that, that go into that. Um, well, and he's you know, on the so, arm. He's on the House Armed Services Committee, where there's an ex- expectation, unless there's really something right. bad, that members support it. Right, right. So his support for the NDA—that that was the only uh, vote that that caused him to move off of 100 um, uh, percent. And yeah, so that was the explanation there. All right, uh, Travis. I know we're going to be tracking this today, this evening. They'll be going late into the night with a uh, candidate forum, and then. We're anticipating possibly tomorrow having a vote on the House floor for a uh, speaker, so we're going to be watching that very closely. Travis, thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Absolutely. All right, folks, uh, be praying. I'm going to bring this up a little bit later, but we need to be praying for the situation. Uh, very serious. It is time to get a speaker. All right, when we come back, we're going to... Uh, We're going to bring class back into session with Professor A.J. Nolte as we take a look at Israel and the history. Don't go away. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be giving guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host, and the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you, as well as links to archived versions of Washington Watch. In our next segment, you're going to hear from the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who described, he he describes what's unfolding in Israel as the greatest threat since the founding of the nation. It's, It's very important to understand the policies and politics that have led us to this point. In our last session with Dr. Nolte, we made it to a discussion of Arab nationalism fueled by 
which fueled the wars in 1967 and 1973. Today, we're going to pick up with the negotiated compromises that appear to be directly connected to the compromised security of Israel. Dr. A.J. Nolte is chair of the Government Graduate Program and director of the International Development MA Program at Regent University. He is also a member of the Virginia Israel Advisory Board. Dr. Nolte, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to be here again, Tony. I always enjoy these conversations. I wish it was under better circumstances in this case, but you know, I think we can we can continue to go through the history and, and really um, explain, I hope, to people um, why what is happening now is happening. Well, and I think it's very important for us to know our history, so we might better uh, might chart a better course forward. Now, on last Thursday, you provided an overview of the establishment of the modern state of Israel, kind of what led up to that. And we left things with you discussing the establishment of Palestinian nationalism. You also said that much of the current situation, and this is where we're going to pick up today, is rooted in the Oslo Accords and the Second Infatata. Can you uh, explain uh, what happened and, and, and how that has brought us to this point. So after 1973, of course, there is a huge shift in the Middle East as the Egyptians decide um, that the U.S. is a, a better ally than the Soviet Union. And part of the price of that alliance is normalization with Israel. And that is also something that I think Sadat was genuinely uh, open to himself as well. Um, having tried the military route, he was now convinced that wasn't going to happen. Um, the you know, previously under Nasser, actually Egypt and Syria were one country, the United Arab Republic. And so their plan was that they were going to wipe out Israel in 67, and then the UAR would annex what is the territory of Israel into itself. So there wasn't an idea that there was going to be a separate Palestinian nation. Now, in, 19, in the late 1970s, of course, you have the Camp David Accords and normalization with Egypt. Um, and this creates, begins a new period in Israeli history, I would say goes from about 1978 or 79 um, up through kind of 2000, 2003, 2004, thereabouts. <clears throat> and this is a period in which it seems possible, some are even very optimistic, that there will be a negotiated solution, a good negotiated peace settlement between Israel and the Arab states and Israel and the Palestinians. And sort of the keystone of this in 1994 is the famous Oslo Peace Accord between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat. Uh, the basic premise here is that the Palestinian Liberation Organization, it was known, the PLO, uh, would be allowed to return to uh, Israel, uh, Israeli territory into the West Bank um, and Gaza, um, in return for which they would recognize Israel's right to exist and work out a negotiated settlement that would eventually uh, lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state that recognized Israel's right to exist. That was the that was the got to have, right? Recognize Israel's right to exist and force war uh, terrorism against Israel, okay? And so um, you have Oslo opens the ball, and for the next 10 years or so, uh, there is all the shuttle diplomacy. There's kind of a three-way diplomacy between Washington uh, and <clears throat> Tel Aviv and Ramallah, which is the capital of, of the recognized Palestinian Authority. Um, what ends up happening is in, in the 1998, which is sort of the second uh, stab at Camp, Camp David, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak put a fairly, from the Israeli perspective, fairly generous offer on the table uh, that would have ceded 98% of the territory of Gaza and the West Bank to um, the, a, a recognized Palestinian state. The issue that was a hang-up was the Temple Mount. Um, but I, I think that was part of it. And I think that was part of what was irreconcilable, but I think there was also another aspect, and that is this. 
we talked about the Palestinian identity, and, and this is a really unfortunate situation. Um, and I say this, I preface this by saying that I have the utmost sympathy for the Palestinian people, um, because I think in many ways they've been victimized by poor political leadership, both at home and abroad. But what you essentially have is a situation in which if the Palestinians ever made peace with Israel, there was a very real sense that they would lose a lot of their international support, particularly the support from uh, the Arab states at the time. Uh, they would lose the refugees, um, would, would lose the benefits that they were receiving. So uh, the UN Refugee Agency, which you mentioned um, last time, uh, was paying generously for these refugee populations. Uh, and so actually there were some costs to peace on the Palestinian side. Um, and so the Palestinians kept stalling, stalling, negotiating, negotiating. And then eventually, once the Temple Mount was a hang-up, you had what was called the Second Intifada. Now, the reason the Second Intifada is so important is because there was a promise of peace around the corner. Everybody was talking about how peace was about to come. Peace was right around the corner. And then all of a sudden, there are all of these suicide bombings. There are uh, all of these outbreaks of terrorism in Israel. And the Israeli population just realized that, the, that Arafat was never going to make a deal. He was never going to actually be a real partner for peace. That was the perception that the Israelis had. Dr. Nolte, I'm, I'm going to push pause for just a moment. We're up against a break, but I want to come back. I know we're going to kind of continue this series over the next couple of weeks, but I, I, but I want to finish this second point for today, the second intifada. Because I, I, there's a connection there, I think, when you look at the Temple Mount and what yes. triggered that in where we are today. So I want to finish that thought when we come back. So if you'll stick with us uh, yes, for just a few more minutes, we're going to come back from the break. And we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. A.J. Nolte. And then uh, we're going to uh, take a look at what happened last night in South Carolina with our special town hall meeting to stand with and pray for Israel. You're going to hear a message from the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dr. David Friedman. That's going to be coming up uh, next here on Washington Watch. So don't go away. We're back right after this break. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, 
and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Right, Dr. A.J. Nolte is uh, sticking around. We're going to have a little after-class discussion here. Uh, Dr. Nolte, thanks for sticking around. Um, so we left off with the second intifada. Let's, uh, in the, there was a connection there with the Temple Mount, which we actually saw as being a trigger for, for what, uh, or at least it was used as such, mm-hmm for what we just saw on October the 7th. Yes, and to understand that, there's another group. We've been talking about the Palestinian Authority. So let me briefly introduce the other actor in the Palestinian drama, and that is a group called Hamas. Um, Hamas was originally part of a group called the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and this was a society that was formed in Egypt, and their goal was to spread Islamic government around the Muslim world. The idea being that if you were a Muslim country, you should be governed either directly by Sharia law uh, or by Islamic principles. You could kind of look at the Muslim Brotherhood as, you know, imagine if you took the the sort of totalitarian um, commitment and focus and ideological rigor of communism, and you took out the communist bits and you put in Islam. That's kind of how the Muslim Brotherhood worked. Hamas was a branch of that, um, and they split off and, and basically rejected um, Fatah because Fatah, or, or, which is what became the political party, um, of the Palestinian Authority of the PLO because of their negotiation with Israel. They said no negotiations with Israel. Their stated goal was the creation of a caliphate, a caliphate that would embrace all of the territory uh, that was in, um, you know, what is now Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, etc. Um, and so the Temple Mount is a big deal for them because, of course, they say, you know, that this is a violation of the this, of this sacred space, <clears throat> the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is sacred in Islam, uh, you know, the, the Dome of the Rock. Um, and so having Jews go on the Temple Mount and pray uh, was was seen as a violation by them. So they call that the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Um, and Hamas really takes an active role in fomenting uh, revolution and, and resistance to terrorism against Israel. Um, <clears throat> and of course, you know, the, the direct connection is that now Hamas, of course, is in charge of Gaza. Um, and say they, they see one of their goals is the restoration of Islamic sovereignty over that whole area. And by Islamic sovereignty, they don't mean sovereignty of the Muslim people. They mean 
they have translated Islam into what I would describe as sort of a political ideology. That's not all is not necessarily all Islam is like that, but certainly the Islamist uh, movements that come out of the Muslim Brotherhood, that's their approach. So, Dr. Nolte, there, there is no peace to be arrived at with Hamas. No, absolutely not. They, they are complete rejectionists. Uh, the only peace they will actually ultimately accept is uh, the extermination of Israel, um, and that is in their charter. That is in their covenant. If you read the founding documents of Hamas, they are adamant about that. And so that this is important for us to understand. There are a lot of problems with Fatah and with the Palestinian Authority. They tend to be corrupt. Uh, sometimes they can be a bit on the thuggish and authoritarian side, um, and they will, they will play both sides against the middle, and they're not always reliable. But they're not, in principle, committed to the destruction of the state of Israel. Uh, but they, they often have to play footsie with some of these more extreme groups, you know, where they, they try to do that to maintain their position in the Palestinian population. But there is a qualitative and quantitative difference between Fatah and Hamas in terms of what they will support and will not support with Israel. Israel can deal with the Palestinian Authority. They can deal with Fatah. Hamas can't be dealt with. And that is one of the things that led to this, is that Israel was kind of hoping that if they just left Hamas alone, left them in charge of Gaza, and kept them from, from stepping out, that eventually, you know, maybe this would this would moderate. Um, and the reality is, is quite the opposite. Hamas has just been using that time to build itself up to attack Israel. Um, they have been compared recently by our government and by the Israelis to ISIS, and that's a very good comparison. Um, and, and it has become an increasingly good comparison as we've seen the horrific atrocities that they committed on 10-7. All right. Uh, well, Dr. Nolte, we're going to leave it there for this class period, but we're going to pick it back up and, uh, and explore further next week this connection between policies, politics, and where we are today in the Middle East. Always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Thanks for having me. All right, Dr. A.J. Nolte at Regent University. Last night, Family Research Council held a special Stand With and Pray for Israel town hall meeting in South Carolina at Village Church in Blythewood, South Carolina, with Pastor Eric Eastup. Uh, it was a great church. Uh, we were uh, joined by Michelle Bachman and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, as well as Chad Conley of uh, Faith Winds. Our evening began with an incredibly strong, sobering message from my friend Ambassador David Friedman, who is in Jerusalem. He was um, he served as ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Israel during the Trump administration. Here's what he had to say. Hi, good evening. This is David Friedman. Um, I want to uh, share with you a few words as you come together to pray for Israel and to, uh, and to uh, beseech God for a good outcome, a good resolution to this, this horrible assault on the Jewish people, the worst since the Holocaust. Um, I always thought that uh, myself, my children, my grandchildren would be spared the, the type of uh, uh, of anti-Semitism, the, the, the barbaric anti-Semitism that we saw two weeks ago, Saturday. Um, I had the uh, experience of walking my 12-year-old granddaughter into a shelter, and she looked at me and she asked me, um, why is it that there are people who want to kill us just because we're Jewish? Uh, they don't know us. They've never met us. Most of them have never met a Jew in their lives. Why do they want to kill us? And I wish I had a good answer. And I, I really had thought that we had progressed in our civilization to a point where uh, those questions wouldn't have to be answered anymore. But regrettably, that's not where we are today. And so we need to get back to work. We need to win. We need to prevail. We need to pray to God and we need to seek God's mercy. I want to thank all of you 
for supporting Israel, for standing with Israel, and for praying with and for Israel. Never before, and I, I really mean this, never before has Israel needed the help, the support, and the prayers of the evangelical Christian community like they do now. This is an existential battle. It's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle for our souls. It's a battle for our Christian and Jewish souls. It's a moment in time where I think um, our children and our grandchildren and, and those we come, up, come upon later in life will ask us, where were you? What were you doing during those last two weeks of October in 2023? Did you stand with Israel? Did you help Israel? Did you support Israel? Did you do everything you could? And everybody can do different things. Not everybody needs to run and, and fight. But did you do what you could do to help Israel, to stand with Israel? I believe that there will come a time when God will ask all of us that question. And those that cannot answer uh, adequately, I, I believe they will not receive God's mercy. Uh, this is that important a moment in time. It's a test of our humanity. As streets are aflame in London, Paris, Amman, San Francisco, people yelling, death to Israel, gas to the Jews, where college campuses all over the United States, some of the best schools in the country, you know, the, the, the places that presumably take the best, the brightest, the smartest into their institutions. Not one of them has condemned the murderous actions of Hamas. They're standing with Hamas. They're standing with the Palestinians at a time when Israelis are bleeding, they're suffering, they're missing, they're murdered, and they're standing with the murderers, not the victims. It's a tough time. It's a tough time for all of us, and it's a test of our humanity. It's a test of our commitment. How committed are we to God's covenant? His covenants to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Is biblical Israel a permanent and sacred place of worship and inspiration for Jews and Christians? Or will it be destroyed, just as so much of our collective biblical history is no longer? As Israel faces the greatest challenge since its founding in 1948, we need your prayers. We need your prayers for our leaders we need your prayers that they act courageously, that they act wisely, that they act as compassionately as they can, given the ruthless enemies that they face. We ask you to pray for the peace in Jerusalem. Uh, you've done that before. We need those prayers more than ever. We need you to pray for peace throughout this land. Pray for the soldiers and their families. Pray for the hostages and their families. Pray for the first responders. Pray for all the volunteers, and there are tens and tens and thousands of them who are volunteering to help within this country. I have never seen Israel more united. I've never seen a greater spirit within this country. As much as people are in pain and grieving and suffering, the entire nation of Israel, from right to left, secular to religious, have come together to support the Jewish people like never before. We need to pray for them to continue. You know, no one right now in Israel is sleeping. The soldiers are not sleeping, protecting our borders. The first responders are not sleeping. They're getting calls every 10 minutes. The volunteers aren't sleeping. 
because there's so much for them to do in so many different places to make sure everybody has what they need. So many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people have been taken out of their homes and dislocated and they need a place to go, need a place to sleep. So many volunteers are doing this 24-7. And so many parents are not sleeping because they're afraid if they go to sleep, the phone might ring with the news that they dread about their family members. But in addition to everyone in Israel who is not sleeping, there's also someone else who is not sleeping. As King David says, the protector of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is not sleeping either, and God is with us, and God will protect us if we seek his blessings. You know, the um, the last line of Psalm 29 is, is, is an interesting uh, choice of words. Uh, the psalmist says, May the Lord give strength unto his people, and may the Lord bless his nation with peace. And it's not a choice of words, because if God gives us peace, do we really need strength? Why are we asking for strength if we're asking for peace? Aren't the two really alternative uh, alternatives? If you have strength, then presumably you need it to fight a war. If you have peace, you don't need strength. But we're learning something very important from that. What King David is telling us is that you can't have peace without strength. There is no peace without strength. Unfortunately, we live in a world where if we are weak, um, we, we will not have peace and, and we will suffer. We ask God to give us strength, not just physical strength, although that's, of course, part of what we need. We need, we need moral strength. We need spiritual strength. We need military strength. We need all the strength that we can muster to defeat this extraordinarily dangerous and barbaric force of evil. We can only do this together. We are united. We are united with you. I believe the, 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 the Christian, uh, the Christian faithful, the evangelical faithful, and the Jews throughout the world, we are all together. We're together like we've never been before. And through that unity, we can all collectively beseech God for his mercy and his blessings, and most importantly, at this difficult hour, for strength. May we all receive strength to emerge victorious from this battle. And may God bless all of you. May God bless Israel and its soldiers and its first responders and its volunteers. May God bless America and all those in America who want to help and support the state of Israel. And may God bless us all. Thank you so much. Again, that was U.S. Ambassador David Friedman. He was ambassador during the Trump administration. He uh, communicated that to us last night in our Stand For and Pray, uh, Stand With and Pray For Israel town hall meeting in South Carolina, a uh, a somber and stirring and emotional message. Uh, just watching it again just um, just shows the need that is there. As as he said, this is the greatest threat that Israel has faced since it became a Jewish state in 1948. And he's asking for prayer. And I believe we need to be joining in prayer. And that's why we had that event last night. A part of that event was former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, and she had this to say. When you showed the clip of Ambassador David Friedman, I've known him, I've been with him, talked with him. I've never seen him more shaken than what we saw tonight. And just speaking with our mutual friend, Tommy Waller, who's from who, a Christian with a ministry in Samaria, I'd never heard Tommy more shaken than this morning. Two rabbis who are friends of mine, Tuli Wives, Tuli Wise and uh, Pesach Waliki. I've been talking with them all week. 
I've never heard them more shaken. And they said to me, one of the rabbis, who's probably in his 50s, almost 60 years old, he said, this is the first time I've ever broken Shabbat. And he called me because he wanted to have get the message out because he saw how the narrative was changing and that the pro-Hamas message was going out. And he was saying, if the churches don't stand with us, we don't know what we're going to do. And so they're shaken. Again, that was uh, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman last night at our Stand With and Pray for Israel town hall meeting. You can actually watch the entire event. Go to TonyPerkins.com and uh, you can follow the links over and watch it. It was a, a powerful, powerful evening. Well, I, I believe it would be the appropriate way, as we heard the ambassador calling upon evangelicals and, and Christians in America to pray for Israel, and, and Michelle echoing that from others that she has spoken to, and I've heard the same thing over and over, that uh, I, I, wanna, I want you to join me right now as we close out today's program on this Monday to pray for Israel. Lord, you've heard the, 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 the cries of your people, and you've heard the, the request. Father, from our friends in Israel, we do pray. We pray for their safety, for their well-being, for all of the people. We pray for truth to reign, that, Lord, there might be peace. We pray for the military. We pray for the political leaders to make wise decisions, the first responders to have the strength to respond. We pray for the resources that are necessary. And we pray, Father, for your will to be done. And, Lord, I pray that America would stand for Israel and give us leadership in our Congress, even now as they begin to meet to deliberate over a speaker. May we select one who will honor you and lead the Congress in following truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 